Romans chapter 1. Ohio's here tonight. Nice to see. Are you Bill's sister? Wow, how did you get to be so good looking? And he. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to our Potter's Shed contingent. Always good to see you. And, well, eh, regulars are here. Um, Romans 1, 18. Romans 14, 2, if we get there. And the Vision Beyond Borders drive for baby and big kid clothing drive, gently used clothes as well as new. You can still bring those in. And I understand we've got about 14 bags from Ralph is in charge. Ralph's right over there, Ralph Anderson. And if you've got clothes, you can talk to him about it. How much longer do you think we got with that? Sunday? Okay. And they're for children in Romania. Right? Romania. I can't read this. Yes. I always have a tender spot in my heart for Romania because when I was in Hungary, uh, with a missionary group one time. We went to Budapest, and we were down there to witness, and we met four ladies from Romania, and they were only allowed two weeks in Budapest every year, and they had to go back, and I think because things would happen to their family if they didn't. And our host pastor went up to these ladies just cold, and he said, where are you from? And they said, Romania. And he said, what is your hope? And they said, our only hope is Jesus Christ, period, over and out. That was it. And he, he came and re- he told us about that. It was remarkable. I have these four women etched in my mind. So this is extraordinary to have this clothing drive for children in Romania. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that you'll open our eyes tonight to see wonderful things in your word. May the word proceed forth with clarity and with power and with the ability to build up and to strengthen us according to your power and according to the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of a mystery. May we be strengthened. And Father, we... Some of us will feel the presence of your son here tonight. And those of us who do not will reckon on it and account on that presence. As we picture you moving and walking through the lampstands, your churches, correcting where necessary, building up, lifting up, elevating, encouraging. So we thank you that the finished work of Christ in the flesh is an ongoing dynamic of Christ in the spirit and through the word tonight. May this time be indeed a time of enrichment in your grace, in your kindness, and in your mercy. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Romans one eighteen, and we're continuing the strategy of the pincer movement coming at Romans from the left flank, Romans 1 through 4, coming at Romans from the right flank, 12 through 
16, and hitting the double center, which is 5 through 8 and 9 through 11. The heart of the matter is right in here, and if you're going to go geographically, the heart of hearts seems to be around 831, if God is for us. Who can be against us? So if God is for all of you there in Rome, why is one group against another? So that's what Paul is after. And we're doing this pincer movement. So we're going to start with Romans 118. That's how we've, far we've gotten on the left flank. And please notice, this is my translation. For the wrath of God is being apocalypsed. Please notice Paul uses apocalyptic terms here because he is an apocalyptic apostle. He is an apocalyptic teacher. And we have the same apocalyptic verbs that we've seen elsewhere here. Apocalypto. The wrath of God is being apocalypse. That's apocalypto. From heaven upon all. Please notice that word all. It's used 75 times. Something was done to this pen. It actually makes me write neat. All is used 70 times, 75 times in Romans the epistle. But apocalypto is a key word. It's used in Romans 1.17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe, to all those who believe, the Jew first and also the Gentile or the Greek. For therein the righteousness of God is revealed. Apocalypto. We've turned that into a verb. And it's all right to do it. Apocalypsed. The righteousness of God is his saving act in Christ and his deliverance that continues in Christ, the Christ spirit in our lives, as we'll find out in Romans 6 through 8. So that righteousness of God is revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. And the faithfulness there, the first faith, ek pistios, means the faithfulness of God in Christ. And that is to faith or to faithfulness, and that's the faithfulness of Christ in us, our participation with the fidelity of Christ, which all of mankind will one day participate in, in the new creation, in the newly renewed heavens and earth and resurrected humanity, all Justified, all rectified, all resurrected, all acquitted, and all loving one another. And so the righteousness of God is real from faithfulness to faithfulness. God's faithfulness in Christ to Christ's faithfulness in us. Illustrated by Paul. I was crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. That means I live within the faithfulness. I live in a participation with the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't frustrate God's unconditional grace. So the righteousness of God is his saving act in Christ, which is revealed from God's faithfulness in Christ, demonstrated mostly at the cross and onwards in the Holy Spirit's action in our lives. And then our shared faithfulness with Christ. For the scripture says, as it is written, the righteous one shall live by faithfulness. The righteous one there is Christ himself. He lives in resurrection, because of his faithfulness 
his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion for us all. And so he lives. Because I live, you will live also, Jesus says in John fourteen nineteen. He says that to everybody. The wrath of God is being apocalypsed in verse 18. The wrath of God is being apocalypsed from heaven upon all impiety and unrighteousness. All the impiety and unrighteousness. Impiety is what some might call a lack of spirituality or a pseudo-spirituality. Unrighteousness is what some people might call immorality. The wrath of God is being apocalypsed from heaven upon all the impiety and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which can be known of God is plainly to be seen. There's another apocalyptic verb, phaneron. And that's an adjective. And then there's the verb, because God has manifested it, phanerao, to them. Apocalypto, phanerao, phaneron, phanerao, all are apocalyptic verbs, and they're used in Romans 1.17. They're used in Romans 3.22, they're used throughout the scriptures, especially Paul's epistles. But now there's a writer. I just finished his book, Marcus Bachmuel. He's in his unparalleled study where he used the, studied the terms apocalypsis and musterion, mystery. In his book called Revelation and Mystery in Ancient Judaism and Pauline Christianity, he made the following observation, which is extremely helpful to me. And while Phil was teaching last week, I was finishing off this book, so I was grateful for that. And he regard, in regarding an important comparison that was evidently trending in the time when Paul wrote, and that was a comparison between the spirituality and morality of Judaism with the spirituality and morality of the surrounding Hellenistic or Greco-Roman culture. And he writes this, the more cosmopolitan Jewish writers seized upon this comparison as an apologetic device to demonstrate how Judaism matched and surpassed the finest of Greek spirituality and morality. In Romans 1.18 to 32, therefore, there's a reflection of that trend that was going on, not in Judaism per se, but in branches of Judaism, there was a comparison being touted between Jewish spirituality and Gentile spirituality. And so therefore, there was a strong opposition and attack against the Gentile pagans for their lack of spirituality, their lack of morality, their idolatry. And so there was all this sermonizing against them. And Romans 1, 18 to 32, there's a reflection of that trend, which may in fact be what is known as a speech in character, a speech in character. Now, Paul uses a lot of these things in Romans. In other words, you'll find in Romans 7, 20, 7, 5, all the way through 25, really 7, 7 through 25, a speech in character, someone saying, I try to do good, but evil is present with me. The evil that I hate, that is what I do. Who will deliver me from the body of 
this death. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a speech in character. It isn't Paul talking, although Paul can certainly relate to this character. In Romans 10, we have a character that he invents called the righteousness of faithfulness. The righteousness of faithfulness speaks on this wise. The law of Moses says this. The righteousness of faithfulness says this. He turns the righteousness that comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ into a character that speaks. In Romans 11, he invites in a conversation partner, an arrogant Gentile. And he says, he makes that person say, well, branches were broken off so that we could be included. That is, Jewish people were cut off from the olive tree so that we could be placed in it, grafted in. Paul said, you better watch out, not be too arrogant, because God's going to graft in the broken off branches, because he has a plan to show mercy to all. And that brings down the arrogance of that Gentile. Here in Romans 1, 18 to 32, what we have is probably a speech in character. And it's one of these cosmopolitan Jewish writers influencing a teacher, a specific teacher. And I want to clarify this because I made some comments last night about it. Some of these writers include the Wisdom of Solomon. That was a book that's in some of your Bibles. It's probably in the Revised Standard Bible and the New Revised Standard Bibles. It's part of the, what they call the Apocrypha. And it was contemporary with Paul. And the kind of teaching that comes from the Wisdom of Solomon is kind of like what Paul is standing against. Let me show you what I mean. In Romans 1, 18 to 32, which we're not going to get all the way through tonight, there's a reflection of something that was trending in branches of Judaism. That is, and so Paul puts it as a speech in character. So it may be as Douglas Campbell, and I taught this in Better Call Paul, as Douglas Campbell proposed in his book, The Deliverance of God, it is kind of a dramatic reproduction of a typical turn or burn type sermon by teachers who represent these writers, cosmopolitan writers, or even a specific Jewish teacher. That was Campbell's theory. And this teacher consistently opposed Paul and his gospel of unconditional grace. He's got a lot of cohorts today in little buildings that are called churches, this teacher. And he consistently opposed Paul. In Better Call Paul, we advocated this view. At least I advocated this view. In Romans, the epistle, I'm asking the question, on set, is it so? Is it so that this could very well be a speech in character? On set, is it so? And I think it's a defensible position to say, yes, it is. In Romans 1, 18 to 32, there is a certain expression of the apologetics of some of the well-known Jewish writers of the time. But what I would not say about Romans 1, 18 to 32, what I would not say is that Paul wholly disagrees or entirely disagrees with the observation of the Gentiles made therein. Elsewhere, the apostle even said something similar. He says, in fact, in Ephesians 4.1, walk worthily of the calling you have received. And then later down the road, he says, not to walk as the Gentiles walk in their fruitless way of thinking. Ephesians 4.17. 
So because Paul calls out the speaker of this speech, which he does in 2.1 and following, does not mean that he disagrees with everything that's said in that speech in Romans 1.18 to 32. And that might be where I've changed up a little bit. He does not disagree with everything that's said about the conspicuously offensive idolatry and gross immorality that you could observe in the various practices of the Gentiles and the Greco-Roman culture, in the Caesar cult, in the Greek mysteries, the offensive behavior. But he calls out what may be the salient representative of those Jewish writers who tend to compare their spirituality and morality with the pagans in a way that reflects favorably on themselves. In other words, Paul says, okay, they suppress the truth by their idolatry, by their gross immorality, by their phallic cult practition, and by their indiscriminate homosexual and heterosexual sex. Yeah, but he says in verse verse 1 of chapter 2, but you, O man, you, O man, You, the one who makes this big sermon against them, are without excuse also inasmuch as you do the same things. Now, how do you do the same things? Well, he explains that by the time he gets to Romans 3, 10 to 18. So the tendency to speak of unrighteousness as immorality and of ungodliness as the idolatrous spirituality that amounts to this terrible egregious impiety was in this preacher this teacher's sermons but Paul represents the wrath of God falling on unrighteousness to mean that God's wrath is directed toward everything that works against salvation which is righteousness the righteous the righteous act of God in Christ. Romans 1, 18 to 32, Paul picks up on one word there in verse 18. The wrath of God is being apocalypse from heaven upon all impiety and unrighteousness that suppresses the truth by unrighteousness. In other words, Yes, the idolatry of the pagans suppresses the truth of God, which is the truth of God in Christ. But does not the doctrine of a justification by the works of the law do the same thing? Does that not suppress the truth? And as I asked last night, does it not suppress the truth when we say that faith as a human work is the way to be justified? That too is a suppression of the truth. Paul is working toward a universal homardiology to make everyone come under the rubric of sin so that he can parlay that universal homardiology into a universal soteriology, a universal saving work of God in Christ for all, so that he can demolish the walls between the saints, the groups of saints in Rome. And if he can break down those walls and produce a unity in Rome, he'll have momentum for the mission to the Spanish peoples, to the 
to Spain. And he'll be able to fulfill his debt to the so-called barbarians in Romans 1.14. Let me say it again a different way. Romans 1.18 to 32 announces that God's wrath is being apocalypsed from heaven upon all the impiety and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul is going to answer this whole sermon beginning with the retort in verse 1 of chapter 2. You can jump down there just for a moment. Therefore you, O man, are without excuse. And then he says, and every one of you who judges, inasmuch as you do the same thing. So he says you, because it seems like he's toe-to-toe here with an opposing preacher, a Jewish Christian missionary teacher, a famous one. But then he says, every one of you, because there's a lot of people influenced by this teacher, and this teacher believes that Jesus was the Messiah and that he died for sins, but there's still something left in the value of circumcision that rectifies or that sanctifies, and dietary laws keep you sanctified from those horrible Gentiles and separated from them. This kind of teaching got into the craw of some of the Jewish Christians in Rome and produced a segregationist arrogance against some of the Gentiles. But Paul later addresses the Gentiles who have an arrogance against some of the Jews who hold to these rules. That's what what Paul's dealing with in Romans. Unless you understand that, you can't get what Romans is all about. That's why I'm pressing it. This is the 34th hour when I'm doing it. So there's no doubt that Paul is lambasting a conversation partner here. Some people say he invented the partner. He invented a a straw man to pound the daylights out of. Some people think it's a real teacher. I tend to think it's a real teacher, or at least it's a real emphasis of teaching that he personifies in a teacher. We can't know for sure, for positive, what it is, because it's it's impossible to, to determine. But there's no reason to rule out that this very teacher may be the thorn in Paul's side that he speaks about in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, calling it a messenger of Satan who has continually buffeted him. He may indeed be a representative of a Jewish apologetic or a not-Judaism. Paul never attacks Judaism itself. He never renounces his Jewishness. The Bible says that salvation comes from the Jews. And as we said last night, people who are anti-Semitic, whether it's a black supremacist or a white supremacist or a neo-Nazi or anyone else who's anti-Semitic ought to recognize that a Jewish prophet died for their sins and rose from the dead and that salvation is from the Jews. I'd be very careful talking about any people group. It is true that all forms of anti-Semitism and all forms of racism are purely evil, and they are egregiously, grossly evil. And therefore, anyone who's anti-Semitic, recognize this, a Jewish prophet died for your sins, and that Jewish prophet is the Son of God, God himself in the flesh. So then, Paul's not slamming the Jew when you get to places like Romans chapter 2. 
He doesn't slam the Jew. He's slamming a particular Jewish Christian teacher who agrees that Christ died for sins. He agrees with the traditional rendition of the gospel that he was buried and rose from the dead, but he does not preach the implications of that universally. He does not preach the implications of that in terms of rectification, justification, and sanctification. And as Paul writes in Romans 4.25, Jesus Christ was handed over for our sins, that's the sins of the world, and resurrected for our rectification, justification, in Romans 4.25. So then, this is pretty complicated stuff, but I'm glad I've been able to kind of thread the needle on it. This person that Paul is standing toe-to-toe with may be a representative of a certain Jewish apologetic, which is appalled at the scandalous practices of the Gentiles while it subtly congratulates itself for avoiding the indictment on that kind of ungodliness and unrighteousness of the Hellenistic culture. Evidently, he's committed to a doctrine which advertises the sanctifying, even justifying power of circumcision. He considers that certain kosher dietary restrictions also guard him from the unclean pagans, even though he's a Christian. Such a teacher, it seems, now listen to the power they can have. Such a teacher or group of teachers strong-armed even the apostle Peter in Antioch as Paul recounts it in Galatians. Peter eating with the Gentiles. In Acts 10, he hears a voice from heaven. He sees a vision of a sheep being let down from heaven. All the unclean animals that are forbidden under kosher dietary law are running all over the place. A voice from heaven says, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, Not me. Not so. I won't do that, Lord. I'm too clean. I'm too holy. And the Lord says, Don't you dare call unclean what I have purified. He didn't learn his lesson, though. At Antioch, he's eating with the Gentiles. Because God cleansed them, that's why. And he knows it. But then these teachers come down from James, from Jerusalem. And he's starstruck, and he's intimidated. And so he backs off. And Paul says he's really angry. But what really ticked Paul off is Barnabas, Paul's co-worker in missionary gospel, preaching the gospel, goes with him. That's when Paul stood up and confronted face-to-face Peter. So if Peter can be strong-armed and Barnabas can be strong-armed, then don't you think a lot of other people could be? Paul's confronting this whole thing. He said to Peter, you're not living according to the gospel. You stand condemned. You're not living according to the gospel. Read it in Galatians 2.11 through 21. 
But Paul plays on the word all in Romans 1.18 in that speech or sermon in order to present and indeed to teach and preach a universal homardiology, which means all sinned, all have sinned. Romans 3.23, Romans 5.12. Then he parlays that universal homardiology, all sinned in Adam, all sinned, and when Adam sinned, all became or were constituted sinners, so that when Christ fulfilled his one act of righteousness on the cross at Calvary, all were constituted as righteous ones. And so the judgment that Paul is excited about, that God does in all the earth in Romans 9.24, is a judgment unto acquittal for all humankind. So he parlays the universal homardiology into a universal soteriology. And when he gets to the universal homardiology, which his opponent also believes in, the opponent is compelled to agree because in Romans 3:10 to 18 Paul says, "And it is written that there is none that does good, and it is written they have altogether gone away, and it is written there is none who understands, and it is written they've all gone aside, and it is written." And so even This opponent teacher has to agree with his universal homardiology. So then what does Paul do? He goes into a universal soteriology. It's called universal salvation. And that doctrine is considered anathema by churches. Guess why? Those churches agree with the teacher that Paul disagreed with rather than agreeing with Paul. So, I can't wait. It's going to take me about four more months to build the doctrine on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus because that's the thing these people hang their hats on because the central doctrine they believe in is not Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but hell. What the hell's wrong with them? But when you find out that Jesus wasn't teaching about the afterlife, in fact, he did that parable to shut down that idea of an afterlife, of being a man being in hell, burning in flames. He did the parable to expose that belief in order to shut it down. And I can prove it. I can prove it historically. I can prove it exegetically. I can prove it through the comparison with other folkloric tales that were going on at the same time, which Jesus took and twist it around to show that that is not a picture of the afterlife, but that it was an indictment on people who held that doctrine. Wow. I can already feel the punch. So then... The hoped-for unity that he presents here. He, by the time he gets through Romans 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and then 9 through 11, he's hoping to have a unity there which will be phenomenal momentum to what he considers to be the gospel to the uttermost part of the earth, which to him was Spain. The question, did Paul ever make it to Spain? The answer is no. He was imprisoned. And executed before he got there. That shows you that even the best hopes in this life sometimes aren't realized. 
But the hopes that we have in this life are to submit to the hope of a universal restoration of all things, which we must never let go of. Hopes in this life may or may not be realized. Even the plans of an apostle were not realized. But the plan of God, which is to reconcile the heavens and the earth in Jesus Christ, will be realized. So submit everything in your hope chest in this world to that hope. And you'll live and you'll die with that hope on your mind, in your heart, and maybe even on your lips. So Paul takes that word all, all unrighteousness and impiety that suppresses the truth. Legalism suppresses the truth as much as lasciviousness, asceticism like they practice in the Qumran desert. The Essenes who gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. And guess who their hero was? The teacher of righteousness. Paul's going toe-to-toe with him too. Asceticism where you give up stuff. Oh, wait a minute. It's a sacred season now. I gave up observing that season for that season. But anyways, asceticism also suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. It works against salvation. If we're left to ourselves, we will only work to our destruction. Only God works for our salvation, and he's done it. The hoped-for unity that Paul is intending to create in Romans by a universal homardiology that he parlays into a universal soteriology would result in momentum for the missionary activity to Spain where he intends to pay his debt to the barbarians, as they're called. The Jews called the Greeks pagans. The pagans called the Spaniards and other people that weren't Greco-Romanized barbarians. And so some people thought they were wise, and they called other people unwise. And so the, and Paul said, I'll tell you who's really wise. The word of the cross is the wisdom of God. To those who are being saved, it is the power of God. To those that are not being saved, that is, they're not in the process of salvation and being set right and being sanctified, it's foolishness. The word of the cross is the reality. In short, Romans 1, 18 to 32, and I deliberately slowed down tonight. I was going to go way ahead of this, but I wanted to slow down tonight just to give you the sense of what Romans 1, 18 to 32 is. It may well be the sermon of Paul's nemesis. And Paul uses it to great effect to make his case and to defend his gospel and to demolish the arrogance that's at the root of group biases in Rome. Again, among these writers that are called cosmopolitan, which means they took a lot of different things from a lot of different cultures, and they took it as their own, and they, were, they happened to be Jewish writers. Among them was a famous one called The Letter to Aristeas, A-R-I-S-T-E-A-S. Another one is called Artapanus, A-T-R-A-A-R-T-A-P-A-N-U-S. And the most famous is the author of Wisdom of Solomon, 
probably a contemporary of Paul, oddly enough, but I decided to take out chapter 13 of the Wisdom of Solomon and read it all to you tonight because I want you to see parallels in it to Romans 1.18-32. And it didn't make the canon of the Scripture, and there's reasons for it. I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version, which has Wisdom of Solomon in its Bible, the whole of chapter 13, and see if it doesn't reflect when you get on your own sometime and read the whole thing of 118 to 32, which we will eventually do. See if it doesn't reflect that same kind of sermonizing. I'll read it without the numbers. For all people who were ignorant of God were foolish by nature, and they were unable from the good things that are seen to know the one who exists. Nor did they recognize the artisan while paying heed to his works. But they suppose that either fire or wind or swift air or the circle of the stars or turbulent water or the luminaries of heaven were the gods that rule the world. If through delight in the beauty of these things people assume them to be gods, let them know how much better than these is their Lord, for the author of beauty created them. And if people were amazed at the power and were at their power and working, let them perceive from, from them how much more powerful is the one who formed them. For from the greatness and beauty of created things comes a corresponding perception of their creator. Yet these people are little to be blamed, he says, for perhaps they go astray while seeking God and desiring to find him. For while they live among his works, they keep searching, and they trust in what they see, because the things that are seen are beautiful. But then he says this in verse 8. Yet again, not even they are to be excused. For if they had the power to know so much that they could investigate the world, how did they fail to find sooner the Lord of all these things? But miserable with their hopes set on dead things are those who give the name gods to the work of human hands, gold and silver fashioned with skill and likeness of animals, or a useless stone, the work of an ancient hand. A skilled woodcutter may saw down a tree easy to handle and skillfully strip off all its bark, and then with pleasing workmanship make a useful vessel that serves life's needs, and burn the cast-off pieces of his work to prepare his food and eat his fill. But a cast-off piece from among them, useful for nothing, a stick crooked and full of knots, he takes and carves with care in his leisure and shapes it with skill gained in idleness. He forms the likeness of a human being. Or he makes it some worthless animal, giving it a cost of red paint, a coat of red paint, and coloring its surface red and covering every blemish in it with paint. Then he makes a suitable niche for it and sets it on the wall and fastens it there with iron. He takes thought for it so that it may not fall because he knows that it cannot help itself for it is only an image and has has need of help. When he prays about possessions and his marriage and children, He's not ashamed to address a lifeless thing. For health, he appeals to a thing that is weak. For life, he prays to a thing that is dead. For aid, he entreats a thing that is utterly inexperienced. For a prosperous journey, a thing that cannot take a step. 
For money-making and work and success with his hands, he asks strength of a thing whose hands have no strength. This is an indictment against the Gentiles that are living around them. And it's a critique of Gentile idolaters, at the heart of which is this declaration. They are not to be excused. This finds a strong echo in Romans one twenty. Look at what it says here. And so they are without excuse. Romans one twenty. For ever since the creation of the universe, God's invisible qualities, both his eternal power, that's idios, dunamis, and his divinity, theotes, are understood being clearly perceived through what he has made. As a result, they are without excuse. Who are these Gentiles, these idolaters? In other passages, I'm going to skip some of the things I was going to say here, but then what does Paul do in Romans 2.1? After this big, long indictment of the Gentiles by a Jewish Christian teacher, Paul writes verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, you... Oh, man, we could say, oh, preacher, you mere mortal are without excuse, uses the same word as used in Wisdom of Solomon 13.8, in which there's a diatribe against the Gentiles, the same word that's used in Romans 1.20 in the diatribe against the Gentiles, Paul uses against a Jewish Christian teacher. You're without excuse, he says. And then he says, every one of you who judges. There's a lot of followers of this teacher. For while you are judging, Crino, another, you are condemning, Katakrino, yourself. Since you, the judge, do the same things. Now, they say, but we don't do the same things. And Paul says, you do the equivalent. You suppress the truth by your unrighteousness, by preaching a gospel of justification by the works of the law. Even though you know Jesus died for your sins, you still think circumcision has rectifying value. You're doing the same things as the Gentiles who pray to lifeless idols. You're suppressing the truth in ungodliness. And God's wrath falls not on people who do it, but on the unrighteousness that suppresses the truth. So he's going to hammer the daylights out of the Jews and the Jewish Christians who judge the Gentiles. But then in Romans 11, he's going to get the Gentiles who are despising the Jews. And before long, you're going to see that Paul has demolished the walls of partition. You know why? Jesus Christ already did it in the body of his flesh through death. He destroyed the middle wall of partition, making of the two, the Jew and the Greek, one new humanity. That one new humanity has a newness of life, and it's a newness of life that is by the Spirit. Put Romans 6, 4 together with 7, 6. A new kind of living, and it's a new kind of doctrine to which we've been handed over in Romans six seventeen, And it's a way of life in the spirit in Romans 7, 6. It is a way of life that doesn't hate each other, but hates the hostility that separates each other. It's the life by which the Holy Spirit pours about the love of God in our hearts. 
That's the love of God for people. Among other things. Now, keeping with the pincer movement, and I've skipped over a lot of historical material, let's go to Romans 14 on the right flank. What's happening here? Is there something that corresponds here? Are we putting a squeeze on? Is it still working? We've already gone through, and I have a translation of Romans 15 and 16, the total thing. And Romans 1, 1 to 17, the total thing, translated. And so now we go to Romans 14. Let's see if there's a correspondence here, starting in verse 10, and see what Paul's getting at. So he says, now why? Now you. Doesn't that sound familiar? You. Why do you judge, Crino? Your brother or you. He's speaking now to a Jewish Christian who's judging his Gentile brother because he doesn't follow kosher rules or he hasn't been circumcised. So he says, you. And Phoebe's doing the production of this. She's performing Paul's epistle, probably. I think that's right, too, Phoebe. This, these epistles were made to be read aloud, and they were read with Paul's own inflections of voice. They were read with people that understood the speech and character. Phoebe might have actually pointed to somebody in the audience and said, You! You! Why do you judge your brother? Or you, points to a Gentile, why should you consider your brother of no account? Those no account Jewish Christians. They ought to know better than to continue doing those laws and observing those days and celebrating the feast of Purim and the rest of it. For you see, Paul says, we will all, we will all pontes be present, present to be accounted for. We, you say someone is so-and-so present, used to call our names in school, present. And they would say, Nap, Alan, present. And then I had a friend named Everett Sweet, the poor guy. So every day it was Sweet Everett. You know. <laughs> so he, there's other names that I won't mention, but uh, there, it gets embarrassing sometimes. So Sweet Everett was there, and Nap Allen was there, and a whole lot of other people were there. But this is a judgment for which we are going to be present to be accounted for. We, you see, we will all be present, future, middle, first person, plural, to be accounted for at the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, now stay with me these last couple minutes. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will give praise to me. Now, since every tongue will give grateful praise to God before his judicial bench, it is evident that every person will have been Judged by God with a judgment of acquittal. How many people can be judged unto damnation and bow and praise gratefully God? Oh, thank you, Lord, for sending me to hell to burn in flames forever. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will sing praise to me. 
Why? Because everyone will receive a judgment unto acquittal. You're all sinners, Paul says. Why do you judge? Why do you, Jewish Christian, judge your brother? And why do you, Gentile Christian, consider your brother to be of no account, to be a nobody? We're all going to be present and stand before the judgment seat of God because as it is written, God said this, every knee will genuflect to me, every tongue will acknowledge praise to me. Now we already explained the difference. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Yahweh to the glory of the Father. Here is the second phase of what happens. Every knee that bows and every tongue confesses is praising God the Father in a praise chorus led by Jesus Christ himself. Because in Adam all die, and in Adam all are constituted as sinners, but in Christ all are made alive, and in Christ all are rectified and given rectifying life. So every knee is going to sing praise to the Father. Every knee will bow, every tongue sing praises to me, says God, because the judgment that everyone will receive is a judgment of acquittal. That's the Lord who does judgment in all the earth. That's the Lord who does righteousness in all the earth. That's the Lord who does mercy in all the earth in Jeremiah 9.24. You not only have the right to brag about him, you got the mandate too. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this that he knows and understands me, says the Lord, that I do mercy in all the earth, that I do judgment, and that's a judgment unto acquittal of all sinful mankind. And I do righteousness in all the earth. I rectify all human beings who were once in earthy Adam, but now bear the image of the heavenly man. You start knowing that God, you can't, it's impossible. You can't only not despise your brother or your sister. You can't despise anybody. You can't know anyone after the flesh. You can't know any person after the flesh anymore. The love of Christ constrains you because if one died for all, then all died. That's why Jesus said some will rise to eternal life. Those that have done good, but there's none that have done good. And those that have done evil shall rise to a resurrection unto judgment, crisis, which means acquittal, because all have done evil. John 5, 28 and 29 doesn't have a binary view of humanity, the saved and the damned. It has the singular view of humanity that everyone will be raised to life and to acquittal. So Paul's getting it. That's the gospel. He was Handed over. Yeah, but these Gentiles were handed over to do these horrible, horrible, terrible things, ugly things, egregious, scandalous things. It says it three times in Romans 1, 24 and 26 and 28. And Paul says, yes, but you know what's even more fantastic than that? Jesus Christ, the sinless one, was handed over, same word, paradidomy, for all of our sins, theirs and mine and yours, And then he was resurrected for their justification and yours and mine. And by their, I mean everybody in Romans 5.18. For by the disobedience of the one man, many were constituted sinners, and the many means all. And by the righteous act, 
act of one man, the many or all human beings were constituted as righteous ones and given rectifying life. I just preached the gospel to you. And you know, if I went to about 90% of the churches in the United States of America and preached that gospel to you, I'd get kicked out, disfellowshipped, disaffiliated, and called a heretic. In fact, that's already happened to me twice. Flex your spiritual muscles, break the coffin you're in, get judged. That's it. Golden boy to whipping boy. I'm going to write, write a book someday. Golden boy to whipping boy. I went to one, the one place I used to speak. There was applaud. People applaud. I don't like applause, incidentally. But people applauded like crazy. Then I started preaching about the cross in a deeper way. And I went down to preach at the same place. And I got blank, dead stares from 500 people. Except for one person at that Bible school. His name is Brian Messick. And he had a smile on his face. And he left there a little while after. I didn't tell him to. I never tell anybody to come here. I never tell anybody to leave there. And I have told a few people to leave here. Only because they hurt the privacy of other people. Or threaten other people. Or distract other people. And it's usually only temporary. We're just nice. So in closing, therefore don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. Well, you know, there's going to be a fire. Yes, and it's going to burn up all your dead works. How many of you got stacked up? All your ascetic works, all the things you gave up for Lent. Going to be a big bonfire. So that we'll be saved as through fire. Fire is a saving agent to God. Our God is a consuming fire. God's love is fire, and it's a more vehement fire than the fire of hell, which is a way of speaking. It's a way of speaking that says nobody goes to hell, not even atheistic physicists. Many waters cannot quench love. Its fire is vehement flame. Our God is a consuming fire. He consumes everything that is against his act of deliverance. The wrath of God falls on everything that goes against God's saving act. It's called unrighteousness. So in closing, the Bema rationale And by the acknowledgement of God's universal verdict of acquittal, Paul goes on to say in verse 12 of 14, so then each one of us will give an account. Please notice he keeps saying everyone, each, each, every, every, each, each and every, because ultimately the indictment or the gauntlet falls at the feet, not of a Christian Jewish group or a Christian Gentile group, but at your feet and my feet. 
We have to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God, each individually. Because the thing that makes for group bias is our own curvature within ourselves created by the power of sin. That's what Romans getting to, you see. Right at the heart, it gets right to me. Each one of us should give an account to God. Therefore, from now on, from now on, stop judging one another. Stop it. Cut it out. Instead, judge this, Paul says. This is fighting words. You want to judge something? Judge this. Not to put an obstacle or an enticement in your brother's way. Now, this should serve. This doesn't impugn or say that the writings of wisdom of Solomon are evil. Nor should it serve to describe the typical attitude of Jews toward Gentiles. This is not the typical attitude of Jews toward Gentiles that Paul is rebuking. There is a trending trend represented in these books in which the Jewish Christians took up the mantle of judging Gentile Christians or putting them down because they didn't have the influence of a Jewish heritage. And then the Gentiles despising the Jews for holding on to that heritage. And Paul was destroying that middle wall of partition. All he was doing was in agreement with what Jesus Christ did. Jesus himself is our peace, who destroyed the middle wall of partition in his body of his flesh through death. To make out of the two... One new man. Guess what the middle wall of partition was made out of? Resantima. Mutual hostility. It's gone. Through the cross. One new humanity. And there's a second phase to this message that'll be the blockbuster of all Romans, and it has to do with the mystery, the total mystery. We've studied the mystery in part. The mystery is that Gentiles and Jews are partakers of the same benefits by the gospel. We used to think that was the whole mystery. No, that's the pars pro toto. That's a part representing the whole. The whole of the mystery is God's intention to reconcile all beings in heaven and on earth together in his son. That's the mystery in toto. The mystery that the Gentiles come in their fullness first and then God saves all Israel, that's not the mystery in toto. That's the mystery pars pro toto, which we're going to teach that Latin phrase. It's got a lot of mileage to it. That is, in other words, a mystery, the mystery of God, but a part is given for the whole. What we missed and what dispensationalists miss And what people say they're dispensationalists and take pride in it, what they've missed is that the mystery they talk about is only a tiny part of the mystery which Paul exposes in Romans 16, 25, and 26 in agreement with Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. The mystery of God's intent to summarize, to bring everything into summary in his son, Jesus Christ. And when that happens, guess what Jesus Christ does? He presents himself to the Father. Father, 
with all of his redeemed creation and leads a chorus of praise to the Father so that every mouth, including the mouth of Jesus Christ and all that he's redeemed, sings praises to the Father for the Father's rectifying justice. Well, what about God's justice? I just told you about it. So Paul isn't combating Jews, and he's not combating Gentiles. He's not condemning pagans, and he's not condemning his fellow Jews. He is condemning and blowing the daylights out of group biases in Rome between Christian cells. If you let them grow up, you know what they'd be? Denominations. Denominations like Calvinists who actually think that God sat down one day like someone throwing darts at a map and said, well, damn this one to hell, and the only reason we're doing it is because they're actually born. They're born, and so we're going to predestine them to a, an endless hell, an endless eternity in burning flames. And we'll illustrate it by this rich guy in Luke 16 who dies and he's in flames. That's Calvinism to some people. But we'll predestine other people by unconditional grace. They can't do anything to do this, just like the guy can't do anything to get into hell. No one can do anything to get into heaven. We're just going to make an arbitrary choice, us three, the triune God. And some are, But you know what Karl Barth finally discovered? The only rejected one that was predestined to be rejected was Jesus Christ. And the only elected one, elected indeed in 1 Peter 1.20, that was ever elected was Jesus Christ. And so he's the only rejected one and the only elected one. And when he was raised from the dead, he became alive with a new kind of life. And he says, because I live in John 14.19, you will live also. So there isn't a resurrection of the damned to go to hell and a resurrection of the righteous to go to heaven. Everybody's got the line going through us all. Some, some of us have done some good things in life. I can't think of any now that I've done, but there's, I'm sure there's one or two back there. We've all done evil things in our life. So the good and the evil <clears throat> is all of humanity. And so the resurrection is an, a resurrection to acquittal and life for all. Because of Jesus Christ. It's because of Jesus Christ. It's because of Jesus Christ. The best accusation I ever received as a preacher in a church was someone who left and they went to another church and the person said, why did you leave that church? And she said, they rely too much down there on Jesus. That makes me want to drop the mic. But I don't want to break it. All right, that's it. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to not only teach the word, but to preach it. And we thank you that Jesus Christ received rejection for us, being handed over for our sins, and that he was elected for us because the righteous one lives by his faithfulness, and he has made us righteous and we live in participation with his faithfulness. What a hope we have. What a hope we have. And may no one in this place ever be discouraged 
when hopes that we have in this life may not come to fruition, but may we submit every hope in this life to the hope that must and absolutely and inevitably will come. The new creation, the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness and deliverance and salvation are at home. And may we know, Father, for one thing for sure, that nothing in life or death, nothing in this life, neither peril nor sword nor hunger nor famine nor disaster nor drought nor terrorism nor tyranny can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Grant us that inner security that makes for tranquility, that makes for peace, and that makes us live in peace with one another. We ask it in Christ's name, and we 